how many different types of misunderstanding or opposition to Jesus can you spot in today's passage? It's John 7, 1 to 13. John 7, 1 to 13. The reader will give us a page number. Yeah, come on up, Raphael. In these verses, how many different types of misunderstanding or opposition to Jesus can you spot? I think there's a, there's a good few. Thanks, bro. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of boots was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time is not, has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Amen. Let's ask God's help now in understanding his word. Loving Father, please help us. Have mercy on us. Uh, bless us in the coming minutes. And in particular, we want to see Jesus. We want to get to know him better. We want to see him as he really is. We know that will change us. Uh, we know that will change everything. So just give us a, an accurate, deep vision of Jesus from these verses. We pray this in his name, that he's the reason we can even talk to you right now. So Father, would you deepen and grow and strengthen our relationship with him in the coming minutes. Amen. Um, let's have a look at some pictures. This one's quite well known. But in terms of who you saw first, hands up who saw the old woman first? No. Hands up who saw the, the young woman first? Really? Interesting. So, old woman, that's her eye, that's her nose, that's her mouth. See? No? Some of it, come and have another look afterwards. Um, now, this is a picture of an old man with his, his head on the pillow with half his face and his hair covered in a brown splotch, right? Or is it? Or is it a picture of a young woman with her head on the pillow looking away from you? And that's her ear, that's her cheek and her jawline, her chin, that's her hair. See that? Some people-ish. What else have we got? Hands up who saw the rabbit first. 
Hands up, we saw the duck first. Okay. And, and finally, for my personal favorites. I'm allowed to make jokes like that. We've got a cocker spaniel puppy ourselves, or we did have. <laughs> Everyone get that? I'll move on. The emails of complaint will be coming in tomorrow morning, so let's just keep moving. Um, this morning, we're thinking about seeing people as they really are, seeing past surface appearances, seeing hidden realities about people. In particular, we're thinking about this in the area of opposition to Jesus. And this will be relevant to a few of us in a few different ways. For example, some of us will be sitting here right now, and our assumption will be that most people, you man on the street, are basically neutral when it comes to Jesus. They don't follow him, they're not Christians, but they're not like Jesus haters either. They don't really care, they don't have an opinion. They're neutral. And if that's me, if that's what I'm thinking right now, this passage this morning has something really big to say to me that I need to hear. Um, secondly, some of us may be sitting here and... Right now, you're a bit discouraged by opposition to Jesus from those around you, who you're trying to witness to, you know, your family members, friends, work colleagues. And their resistance and their apparent, the, the apparent lack of any progress of people getting converted gets us down. And we, we think, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? No, no one's getting saved around me. I'm just getting heat for trying to be faithful to Jesus, trying to be gracious and friendly and patient. What am I doing wrong? And again, if that's me, this passage has something enormous to say to me. Uh, one last category of people among us this morning might be those who are sitting here now, and, and you wouldn't think this, but the truth is, you could be a little bit complacent about your relationship with Jesus and your idea of who he is to you. And obviously the, the nature of that, by definition, is that you don't think that's you. If you thought that was you, that well, complacency is not thinking it's you. But some of us will be in that category, potentially. And again, if so, this passage has something urgent you need to hear. Well, in these verses, we're going to see two main types of opposition to Jesus. Here's the first, open hostility. If you'd like a, a Redeemer notebook to take some notes in, do stick a hand up, someone will bring you one. Um, but the first thing... The first type of opposition to Jesus in these verses is open hostility. And just to set the context for this in John's Gospel, as we enter chapter 7 now, we've been going through John for a few months, about to take a break for Christmas, we'll crack on 2020 and be done with it in the middle of 2020, having had a few more breaks along the way. But as we enter chapter 7 now, we're entering the main central section in John, chapters 7 to 10. And chapters 7 to 10 cover the final year in Jesus' ministry. From the second Passover in John's Gospel, when he fed the 5,000, we saw that a few weeks ago, all the way up until the third and final Passover in John's Gospel, when Jesus dies, when he himself is the Passover lamb. And so we're now in the final year of Jesus' ministry. And John's narrative of this final year is dominated by two particular annual Jewish feasts. The first of which you heard in the reading in verse 2, the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. And I'll explain what that is and what it meant next week, because next week's when we see Jesus fulfilling that. But there's just a bit of orientation. So let's dive in. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, in other words, his, his home region, slightly out in the sticks, up north. He would not go about in Judea, nerve center of the country down south where Jerusalem was, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 
Now, in John's Gospel, whenever we read about the Jews, that normally refers to the Jewish leaders. And so this isn't hard to see, is it? Open hostility, right from the get-go. But that could raise a question in your minds. And it's a question my eight-year-old had the other day. And we had been doing a Bible story about Jesus. And he sort of looked very thoughtful at the end and said to me, Daddy, why did some people hate Jesus? It's a great question, isn't it? If Jesus was who we've been seeing him to be, surely everyone would just love him. Why do some people hate him? And there are multiple levels at which you could answer that question from John's Gospel as to why the Jews, the Jewish leaders, did hate Jesus. One of the big ones would have to be, one of the big answers, he was a threat. He was a threat to their religious system. He was a threat to their reputation. He was a threat to exposing their corruption. He was a threat to their power, their popularity. He was a threat. And so they were openly hostile. Or just have a look down on verse 7. John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, he's talking to his brothers, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Have a look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? I bet they were. They needed him dead. So that's the first type of opposition in these verses, open hostility. Just as a quick side note, if anyone's wondering why it seems like Jesus kind of maybe tells a fib, um, in verse 8 when he says he's not going down to the feast and then he secretly does go down in verse 10. Um, he doesn't tell a fib. The, the perfect son of God was sinless. Uh, the Greek in verse 9 for I am not going down to this feast is in the present tense implying I'm not going down now. Uh, which is why if you look at the footnote, I, you should have a footnote in your editions of the ESV there. Some early manuscripts even in, include the word yet. I'm not going down yet. But yes, he did have to be secretive. That's why he's not open with his brothers. The reason being our first point, there was open hostility. Uh, they needed him dead, the, the Jewish leaders. He was going to hand over his life, just not yet. He's still got some things he needs to say to us before he dies. And this first kind of opposition is very alive and kicking today. And it's easy to spot. Um, here's just some news from just this month from one charity focusing on persecution. We need your help because it's not easy said a Cameroonian church leader to the Barnabas Fund as he described the latest Boko Haram attacks on the mainly Christian village of Grossi in the north of Cameroon. On the 1st of June, a 16-year-old boy, a shepherd, was kidnapped and later killed. On the 8th of June, a woman was murdered in the bush as she collected grass for her sheep. And on the same day, several houses were burned down. Grossi had already been attacked in May and January. That's Africa. Let's head over to the Middle East. Again, I quote, a Syrian Christian and retired schoolteacher, Susan de Kikor, aged 60, was abused repeatedly, tortured, and stoned to death by Islamic militants. Her body was found by members of her church on the 9th of July near her home in a Christian village in Idlib Governorate. A forensic investigation showed that her ordeal had lasted nine hours. A church leader commented, Attacks against Christians, mainly women and girls, are frequent here now. Susan was an unmarried lady and a respected teacher who only remained in our village for the sake of her pupils so they could continue their studies. I could stand here and share story after story after story after story, thousands of stories like this happening all over the world. And we're just not very aware of them, partly because in our little particular <coughs> time and place in history, we're pretty unusual. 
in how little persecution we have, what relatively, what amazing religious freedom we have. But we are unusual here in the 21st century West, Western Europe. And, and the threat of it is there. And the, and the actuality of it is there for millions and millions of our brothers and sisters. And every now and again, even here, you get a little sense of it, even if in diluted form. So it's the people who will tell you to your face, they have no time for Jesus. He's not up for discussion. They get very irritated if you ever try and bring him up. Um, and, and the wonderful, faithful Friendship Friday team, with whom it's my privilege to serve every week, we encounter these people semi-regularly. Um, or it's the people who lap up the hysterical scorn and anger and hatred poured over the Christian God by, you know, the Richard Dawkinses and the Stephen Fry's and the Ricky Gervaises. Um, so there's the first kind of opposition. And, and we'll think about what this means for us in practice at the end. But here's the second kind of opposition. And it's this, misunderstanding. And the first is very easy to spot. The second's not so easy to spot. And we get three different examples of it which are fascinating in these verses. The first is in verses 3 to 7. And the first is people who misunderstand Jesus to be a crowd pleaser, to, to be someone looking to make a name for himself, build a career. In other words, the first misunderstanding is to see Jesus as just a miracle worker. Let's look again at verse 3. So his, disciples, his brothers said to him, biological brothers, uh, leave here and go to, <coughs> go to Judea, that your disciples, in other words, go down south to the, to the feast uh, in Jerusalem, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing, in other words, the miracles. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So like incredibly annoying younger brothers can be, his brothers are very kindly giving him some career advice. Look, they say, you've got great content, Jesus. You've got this weird access to something supernatural, which is pretty cool. You've got a, just a terrible PR agent. You'll never hit the big time if you stay up here. Since you've got this budding career and wowing people, improving their lives with tricks like you know, feeding the big crowd with a few small loaves and fish, and we love that one, by the way, Jesus, head down south to the bright lights. That's where the crowds are. That's where you'll get exposure. You'll get traction. You'll start trending. And look at John's assessment of where that perception of who Jesus was leaves his brothers in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Reading on in verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In other words, he's saying, You have no clue about my real mission. You have no interest in, in what I'm here to do, the cross. That's what his time refers to in John's gospel, the cross. So you might as well just do whatever you want, whenever you want. Just living for yourselves or living for who knows what. But it's not, not what you should be living for. Me and my death. So just do whatever you want, whenever you want. Uh, listen to how one commentator describes his brothers. Jesus is not drawn by them. He detects in their plea the erroneous attitude to miracles that he has already encountered on numerous occasions. We saw this a few weeks ago, feeding of the 5,000. Everyone's just following him to fill their bellies. This commentator goes on, hunger for spectacular signs is the enemy of real faith since it leaves the fallen self-centered heart untouched. That is a crucial sentence that bears repeating that many Christians in many churches today need to hear. I'm just going to say it one more time. Hunger for spectacular signs 
is the enemy of real faith since it leaves the fallen self-centered heart untouched. Anyone can be fired up for Jesus if you've got a fun, exciting magic show. Um, and don't get me wrong, miracles are important. They're great. I, I believe they happen today. I've known some. I praise God for them. God uses them to this day. If miracles become what I trust in, what I get most excited about, where I place my greatest hope, I'm, I'm on the wrong track. Because what I should really trust in and what I should really get excited about, what I should really put my hope in, is Jesus himself. And my relationship with him is based, if it's based on modern day miracles or other kind of exciting, fun, supernatural stuff like, you know, prophecies, what, what a flimsy foundation that would be for a relationship with Jesus. That won't last. You, you won't stay the course if that's what you're building your relationship on Jesus on. This other day, he healed my friend. Well, maybe he did. That cannot be the foundation. That cannot be what we get most excited about. The foundation for a relationship with him is his trustworthy, unchanging word. That's why God gave it to us. That's where we meet him. And if someone's Jesus is basically a, a miracle worker, a magic worker, a kind of religious Father Christmas, who they can pray to when they're desperate, and if they've been good, can hopefully sort them out, you know, sort them out with a parking spot, or get them out of debt, or get them a job, or hook them up with a girl of their dreams. In other words, if someone is like Jesus' brothers in verses 3 to 7, guess what? They're not Christian. They don't believe in him. According to John, in verse 5, they're opposed to him. They might not seem like it, but of course they are. By twisting him into the kind of Jesus they want him to be, they're opposed to the real Jesus. Christian writer called Max Stiles um, who funnily enough emailed me recently about a, a recent Christian who, who will hopefully be joining Redeemer, or, or would hopefully have been joining Redeemer, um, tells a story in one of his very good books about uh, when he led a young man from Sweden called Andreas to Christ. And part of their conversation went like this. Andreas said, I've been told if I decide to... I'm not going to try and do a Swedish accent. I've been told if I decide to follow Jesus, he will make my, uh, make, uh, meet my needs and make my life better. This seemed to Andreas to be a point in Christianity's favor, but I faced the temptation to make it sound better than it is. No, Andreas, no, I said. Andreas blinked his surprise. Actually, Andreas, you may accept Jesus and find that life goes very badly for you. What do you mean, he asked. Well, you may find that your friends reject you. You could lose your job. Your family might oppose your decision. There are lots of bad things that may happen to you if you decide to follow Jesus. Andreas, when Jesus calls you, he calls you to go the way of the cross. Andreas stared at me and asked the obvious. Then why would I want to follow Jesus? And Max Stiles comments, sadly, this is a question that stumps many Christians. For some reason, we feel that unless people's needs are being met like the crowds following Jesus around for miracles, they won't follow Christ. But that's not the gospel. I cocked my head and answered, Andreas, because Jesus is true. We saw this a few weeks ago in John, when lots of Jesus' disciples desert him, and then Simon Peter, the leader of the 12 disciples, the inner ring, says to Jesus, Jesus says, you're going to go too, and he says, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's saying, look, we may or may not like what you say, but you're true. We don't have a choice. 
So that's the first type of misunderstanding. And like I say, we'll circle back at the end, sum this up, and, and see what it means for us practically. There are two other types of misunderstanding here, which we'll cover much more briefly. They get a much more fleeting mention. They're, they're both in verse 12. The first is to think Jesus was just a good man, or, or rather the second of three. And then the third and final one in verse 12 is that he was just a false leader. So let's have a look at verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people, at the feast, that is, when he had turned up. <coughs> While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. So if someone misunderstands Jesus by thinking he's just a good man, you know, an insightful teacher with wonderful things about loving your enemies way ahead of his time, or a, a great moral example for us to follow, or a loving, kind, compassionate individual who was ethically ex exceptional, a kind of first-century Mother Teresa. Someone misunderstands him by thinking he's just a good man. In other words, if someone is like the people in the crowd in the middle of verse 12, then guess what? They're actually opposed to him. And again, it might not seem like it, but again, of course they are. Because just like those who misunderstand him by thinking he's a miracle worker, they've twisted him into the, a different kind of Jesus, the kind of Jesus they want, and in doing so are rejecting the real Jesus. And then there's the third way of misunderstanding him by thinking he's a false leader. And, th and these guys at the end of verse 12, they aren't openly hostile to Jesus like the Jewish leaders in verse 1. They, they um, what's the word? Mutter, rich biblical word um, denoting um, resentment um, against God. They, they grumble about him being a false leader, but they don't have quite, quite have the courage to be open about it in verse 12. And, and those people as well are very much around today. And, and they're the kind of people who, who kind of follow Jesus. They're in the crowd, but they secretly resent him. And they blame him for stuff in their life, and they're angry at him. And maybe that's someone here. And, and that's similar to the second kind of opposition to Jesus um, by misunderstanding him as as a good man. Um, those, those people too, very much around today in churches. Um, so, you know, all of these types of misunderstanding, you, you'll find those people in churches. Prosperity gospel churches follow Jesus, my ticket to a nicer life. You know, Jesus, my, my personal miracle worker, so I can achieve a breakthrough in finances or whatever. Uh, liberal churches follow Jesus, the good man, that the moral example whose value is just in inspiring us, um, who, who wasn't divine, who didn't rise from the dead, who won't return to judge, but who was a good man. And then the third type of misunderstanding, just a false leader. Just, 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 yeah, I follow him, but he's not doing great for my life. I'm pretty secretly resentful to him. I'm quite angry at how things have turned out because of him. Um, three types of misunderstandings. We draw to a finish now. The big question is, so what? So what? There are three basic, simple applications I want to pull out as we start to finish. Number one, we mustn't be naive. We mustn't be naive because there's no such thing as neutral when it comes to Jesus. John's gospel, if you hadn't noticed already, is incredibly binary, very uncomfortably, brutally binary. Light or darkness, that's your choice. From above or from below. You're in or you're out. Uh, good and evil, slave or free, life or death. You have the sun, you don't have the sun. Um, there is no fence to sit on. 
And it's not just John's gospel. Uh, Jesus in Luke 9, for example, says, he who is not with me is against me. That goes for whether someone's openly hostile, like we saw at the beginning with the Jewish leaders, or just someone who's misunderstood Jesus. And they've twisted him to be someone they want him to be, and that still means they're opposed to him. They're on the wrong side of the line. They're following a different Jesus. And so even if someone seems like the nicest, most respectable, most lovely, gentle, kind, honest person, and they're super religious, they go to church all the time. If they're not following the real Jesus, then they're in urgent, urgent need of my love and my prayers, my friendship and my witnessing. Because they're heading for an unthinkable eternity. An eternity the real Jesus lovingly gave his life to save his people from. And so we should be at action stations. Millions and millions of people all around us, including in Croydon. You can see some of them walking past on the pavement right now. Are heading for eternal judgment all around us. And, and we mustn't sugarcoat that or be naive about that, live in denial about that, slip into f- sort of forgetting that, thinking that we're not in the middle of a massive spiritual war with huge urgency. Let's not be naive. But also, number two, we mustn't get discouraged because some of you are taking flack for Jesus and you're standing up for him in the staff room at school, in the office, um, at home. You don't seem to be making any headway evangelistically and on top of that, all you get for your efforts is real unpleasantness, uh, whether it's being laughed at behind your back, not taken seriously, having some friendships that you once valued cool off, having painful tension in the family you're standing up for Jesus and it's not being kidnapped or murdered like in Cameroon and it's not being abused and and tortured like in Syria but it still hurts well just in case you've been wondering you're not necessarily doing anything wrong in fact if you're being persecuted for standing up for Jesus you're probably doing everything right and if you're not having any persecution then I would be a bit discouraged because you probably are doing something wrong But as we've seen this morning, the world hated him. The world opposed and misunderstood him. So if I'm wanting to follow him, I shouldn't think I'm on the wrong path. If I'm experiencing that too, it means I'm on exactly the right path. Matthew 16, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, in other words, come to heaven, be saved, he must deny himself and take up his cross, euphemism for suffer terribly, and follow me. So if you're taking up your cross in this area right now, you're treading in good footsteps. Like, hang on, hang in there. Keep going. You're on the right path. You're on the way to heaven. And the third and final thing to say would just be, don't, don't be wrong about yourself. This is for the, the complacent person who, who thinks they have the right Jesus, but for whom this morning is a loving reality check from God. We mustn't be complacent. Um, maybe as I sit here this morning... Um, I've, I've been sort of not just half listening because I know it all I know. It. I've heard it millions of times before. Um, and I've kind of slipped into following Jesus the miracle worker. You know, my, my little personal Jesus in my back pocket um, who's good for anything from a parking spot to a parking spot to a husband to a nicer life. Or, or maybe I've kind of slipped into following Jesus the good man. You know, I want to be a good little boy um, and so do the right thing and, I, I f- and follow Jesus because, well, He's a great example, isn't he? What an inspirational leader he is. He'll, he'll give some good, much-needed morality into my life. Or maybe I've even slipped into having as my Jesus, Jesus the false leader. 
Jesus, I'm secretly getting quite resentful about. feel a bit of anger towards because of how he's making things happen in my life. Well, if so, this morning's a chance to check my heart. And if needed, own this and repent and recalibrate my vision of Jesus that isn't any of the above. You know, the, the, the good man, the, the false leader or the miracle worker. And so I want to finish with this. Um, about a hundred years ago, there was a bishop called Taylor Smith, pretty famous bishop in England. Uh, he was chaplain general to the armed forces. One evening, he was preaching passionately in a great cathedral about the truth that everyone needs to be born again. In other words, everyone needs to receive from God the new life that is only available in Jesus. And to illustrate his point, at one moment, he flung his arm out to point at the archdeacon, a very senior clergyman, it seated in his place of honor, high up at the top of the cathedral. And he said, you might even be an archdeacon, like my friend here, and not be born again. But unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, the next day he received a letter from his old friend, the archdeacon, and it said this. My dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years but I have never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. Mine has been a hard legal service. guess he had fallen into maybe the third misunderstanding of Jesus. I did not know what was the matter with me, but when you pointed directly at me and said, you might even be an archdeacon and not be born again, I realized in a moment what the trouble was. I had never known anything of the new birth. Well, the next day, the bishop and the archdeacon met together, before long, they were both on their knees with the archdeacon no longer opposing Jesus, but repenting and putting his faith in the real Jesus for the first time ever. So may anyone this morning in that situation do the same. And there'll be a chance right now as we take some silence. So I'll, I'll close with prayer in a minute. Let's have a, a moment of quiet first, maybe for people to pray anything personally to themselves that they now know they need to. Or just to look over the verses, look over the points again and, and meditate on these things before I close in prayer. Let's have some quiet. Loving Father, some of these passages in John are uh, hard-hitting and not that comfortable. But your word does say the wounds of a friend are to be trusted. We know you love us. And Lord, I, I beg you that anyone here this morning, which is all of us, who, who need to take heed of a potential reality check, would do so. Father, help us not to be naive about the fact that if someone is not living for Jesus and loves him and is following him, fully committed, they're against him. Help us not to think there are any neutrals. Lord, help us also not to be discouraged. <laughs> help us to see that everyone even opposed Jesus and he was perfect and he set the pattern. He's the leader. So how much more, as he says in John later in, in chapter 15, how much more should we expect them 
to hate us. And Lord, if, if the world just stand by and applaud our faith in Jesus, help us to be warned that we're, we're missing something, we're doing something wrong. But if we're being persecuted for standing up for him, help us to be encouraged that we're doing something right. And Father God, please help us not to be complacent. Help us to be really wary of all the different ways in which we and anyone can misunderstand Jesus. Help us not to think of him as just the miracle worker who can make my life better and do cool, exciting things. Help us not to think of him as just the good man. Not, not God, just a man, but just an amazing, morally good man. Lord, help us not to think of him as, as a false leader. Someone we, we follow, we're in the crowd, we're engaged, but we're just resentful and, and we mutter and grumble in our hearts. Lord, help us to love and know and follow and stick by, no matter what the cost, the real Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to invite Dustin up and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. All right. Here at Redeemer, we believe that the good news of Jesus changes everything. And um, Jesus' time had not yet come in that passage, but it would come and he would die uh, on a cross and be raised from.